Tonight's Bible reading is Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. It's on page 966 in the Bibles, or page 1934 in the Chinese Bibles. It's Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Uh, brothers and sisters, good evening. Uh, great to see you here at Chapel Lane. Pete Stedman is my name. Uh, if you're new amongst us, great to have you here. Uh, when we have our sermons, we have God's Word open because we like to see that our ministers aren't making it up, but that God said it first. So uh, I trust that you'll have Titus 1 open in front of you. You know, there is nothing that warms a pastor's heart more than seeing God's church grow, uh, more than seeing people come to receive Christ for the first time, uh, come in to meet with God's people for the first time, and give their lives over to following Jesus for the first time. But when you think about it, it's not just pastors, is it? It's actually all of God's people. We love seeing church grow. And if you've been at Norwest for a while, you'll know that we have seen amazing church growth here, year on year, uh, to the extent where our church today looks very different in many ways to even what it did just six years ago. And because uh, pastors get excited about church growth, sometimes pastors get excited about church growth strategies. And there's some pretty unusual ones out there. So... Uh, Pastor Lawrence Bishop II of Solid Rock Church, can I have a guess where he's from? Yep, Ohio. Uh, he decided one Sunday to turn his church into a bull ring. He then attempted to ride the bull before the service. The bull's name, of course, was Bone Crusher. And very tragically, no, 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 he was fine. He actually, he lasted three seconds. Um, and got bucked off and then got up and preached a sermon straight after and apparently, apparently, 300 new believers responded. Then there's other strategies that certain churches use that are just so foreign to our ears that we can't really get our head around them. Like the effort of the uh, Kentucky Baptist Convention to reach unchurched rednecks, as they called them. So they hosted Second Amendment celebrations during which churches gave away stakes and guns as door prizes. Uh, this tactic apparently brought more than 1,500 men to make professions of faith. 
a number of you, I'm not sure how many ladies, but uh, 1,500 men. You know, uh, we hear about strategies like this, and I think we end up being pretty suspicious uh, of the strategies that pastors can use to get people to hear about Jesus. They seem inauthentic. They seem manipulative. Uh, They just don't sit right with us. And sometimes you'll hear people say that for a church to have a strategy, it's ungodly. It's worldly. It's the way corporates think, but not Christians. Of course, strategic thinking can be all of those things. It can be ungodly, it can be worldly, and it can be corporatized. But it doesn't have to be. You see, the Apostle Paul was deeply strategic. And Paul's letter to Titus that we're looking at over the next few weeks shows us just how deeply strategic Paul was. Let me show you on the screen. Uh, This is the Mediterranean world in the first century when the Apostle Paul was at his most prolific letter writing. So you get your bearings. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Ephesus. Here is Corinth. And up here is Rome. And in the days before aeroplanes, the key method of international travel was shipping. Boats were how you got from here to there to take spice or silk or food or people or the gospel around the world. But like planes, ships needed to refuel, to drop cargo, to pick up supplies and passengers. And so seaports became very important hubs of industry, people, and ideas. And here is Crete. Crete is smack bang in the middle of the first century world. A seaport from which it would become crucial to both plant a church and then from it to see the gospel spread out into the rest of the first century world. Highly strategic. Of course, this isn't the only time in the New Testament we see Paul, uh, his strategic approach to mission and ministry on display. Uh, In Romans 15, we get this insight into uh, the way Paul thought about his missionary journeys. Uh, It's on the screen. Paul said, From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. That is a strategy. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. Brothers and sisters, that is not merely an itinerary. It is a strategic missionary church planting plan. So we see that Paul is strategic in where he plants his churches. Uh, We know that Paul is strategic in why he plants where he does. Tonight in Titus, we're going to see Paul is also highly strategic and very deliberate in what he teaches his churches that he's planted. And I need to say up front that the section we're going to look at tonight will seem highly negative. But to understand why, we need to think back to what we saw last week, which is all about the culture uh, and the people of Crete, an island of reprobates, an island full of pirates. Now you see where it is in the Mediterranean, perhaps you understand. An island full of robbers and liars and thieves. Our sermon series is called Grace Does Good. That's because the big idea that runs all the way through Titus is that when the gospel of the Lord Jesus impacts you, you're forever changed. Jesus changes who you are, 
Jesus, Jesus changes how you live. And today's section uh, is all about how Titus can ensure that these new churches in Crete are places where grace does good. And how Titus should deal with people inside the church who have not been changed by the grace of God. People in the church who are not doing good because they haven't tasted and seen the grace of Christ. Tonight's section is where we stumble across the reason for this letter, the problem in the church in Crete. So we're going to see four things tonight, four things that we learn about these people in the church in Crete who are doing great damage to the church. We're then going to think about what each of those things teach us here in our context in Sydney and at Norwest. What do we know about these people? Uh, we know four things. Firstly, number one, they are rebellious. Can you have a look at verse 10, please? Have a look at verse 10. Now, this links back to what we saw last week, which is why it starts with the word because or for. Uh, last week, we saw that elders, uh, that's God's leaders of his church, are to be blameless men. And in verse 9, we see that they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. That is what elders had to do. These men in verse 10 are the opposite of the men described in verse 9. These men are rebellious. They do not hold firmly to the message of the gospel. That's the rebellion that it's talking about. The word actually used there is insubordinate. These men refuse to submit to the authority of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it has been handed down to them. You know, when you strip everything back about Norwest, uh, fundamentally, we here are a Bible people. We are a people who love God as we meet Him in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we meet Him in His Word. We're not a people who love the God that we imagine is up there. We're not a people who follow the Jesus who is for me and who makes me feel better about myself. We follow Jesus Christ, who we meet on the pages of the New Testament, who walked in history on this world 2,000 years ago. The Lord himself, who said wonderful things such as, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The Lord himself, who said wonderfully difficult things, such as, Away from me, I never knew you, to certain religious churchgoers. The easy and the hard. We believe it all. We teach it all. We follow it all. Even the hard parts. Why? Because we choose not to be rebellious, like the men in verse 10. Yet we recognize that often we want to be. We choose here to put our own intellectual doubts and questions that we have, our theological difficulties, our pastoral issues, we choose to put all of them subservient to and subordinate to God's revealed word. Now, that's not to say that we don't have these areas of wrestling and doubt and challenge. Every thoughtful Christian does. If you don't, you're not a thoughtful Christian, I would say. We've just learned to let God's word 
have the final say over our own opinions. Why? Because we know that God is God. And we know that we are not. First thing we see, these men are rebellious. Second thing we see is that the men causing trouble are of the circumcision group. This is also in verse 10, part B. Now what that tells us, very important, these false teachers in the church causing problems were from a Jewish background. Now this group and the problems they were causing were not unique to Crete. Uh, You can read in a number of places across the New Testament about conflict that arises between Christians and Jews. And when you think about it, it makes sense because Christianity grew out of Judaism. The confusion for people was this. Uh, If you became a Christian, were you still a Jew? Did you keep practicing Judaism? What, What about all the Jewish laws and traditions that for centuries your family had observed and kept? Well, the answer that we find in the New Testament is that according to Jesus, Judaism, with all its its meanings, with all its laws, with all its rituals and practices, Judaism was always only ever one thing. It was one big signpost that pointed towards something else. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, Judaism points to me. For Jesus... Judaism found its end point, its perfection, its completion in him. Let me give you a couple of examples so this makes a bit more sense. You'll know that Judaism had a temple, a place to meet with God. Jesus said, I am the new place that you will meet with God. You'll know that Judaism had a purification system to make people clean. Jesus met a bleeding woman in a marketplace and said to her, be clean. You'll know that Judaism had a sacrificial system to deal with people's sin. John the Baptist saw Jesus in the distance and cried out, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what we know about these false teachers in Titus is that they were Jewish men focused in on Jewish myths. Verse 14 tells us that. What that means is they were drawing people in the church away from the end point of Judaism, Jesus Christ himself, and they were pointing them back to the signposts, looking in the wrong direction. Brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to notice. The best lies that infiltrate God's church are cleverly wrapped in a whole lot of truth. You know, these lies in Crete would have been so hard to discern because they seemed so right. They were linked to what people had always known and always done. You know, next Sunday, if someone walked in here to Chapel Lane with a sandwich board on their shoulders which said, repent because Jesus is coming back next Wednesday at 3 p.m., you know, that wouldn't cause too many issues. We'd need to handle that, but that would be fine. You know why? Because blatant lies are easier to spot. It is the ones wrapped in truth that are much harder. So if there was a group at Norwest that started to teach and influence others that Jesus had come to make your life better and that if you were really faithful, you wouldn't struggle with mental health issues as some churches teach wickedly, I would say. Or that you're only converted if you can speak in tongues and have a second blessing of the Holy Spirit as if one filling of the Holy Spirit of God actually isn't enough. Or if people came in and started teaching others that, look, Jesus is absolutely God's son, but he's not God. 
See, these are all errors that will lead people away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And because there's a bit of truth wrapped up in them, they are harder to spot. But they will kill God's church. Well, number three. The third thing we learn about these men is that they are to be rebuked sharply. Uh, Paul's language is very strong here. We see this in verse 13. Um, but we also see the same idea in verse 11 where it says they must be silenced. Literally, their mouths must be stopped. Now, who is it to do this rebuking of these false teachers? Well, that's the godly elders described back in verses 6 to 9. You see, so serious is the outcome of what these false teachers are doing that the elders in God's church are to silence them and rebuke them sharply. I want to ask you a question. Uh, this, is a quest, this is a feeling question, not a thinking question. Okay, let me explain the difference. I don't want you to rationally sit there and think, oh, I wonder what the logic is, I wonder how that would. No, no, it's here. How does this one make you feel? All right, here's the question. How do you feel about the fact that there are people at Norwest, elders here, James, Craig and me, who will at times need to stop people's mouths? And rebuke sharply. How do you feel about that? Let me tell you how I think it feels. I think it feels remarkably heavy handed, doesn't it? I mean, we're a community group, well, we're a church. <laughs> and you, Pete, with all due respect, you're just a pastor. You're not a police officer, you're not the CEO of a top 500 company. Now I want you to imagine that there is someone in our church who is teaching your children, if you have them, that it's fine to live for Jesus if you want, but it's also fine not to. Whatever you want, if it feels good, go and do that. Entirely counter to what the whole Bible teaches and what you as a parent long for more than anything else. Imagine someone was doing that. Or imagine this. Imagine someone here at Norwest was subtly and quietly getting alongside your husband or wife and saying to them, you don't have to stay with them. You should go and be with your soulmate. God would not want to stand in the way of true love. I mean, God is love after all. Haven't you read 1 John? Now, don't you hope there was someone in the church who had the humble authority, the prayerful wisdom, and the ability to silence those teaching such things. What this shows us is that in the face of errant, mistaken church teaching, elders must be clear, strong, and prepared to say difficult things to difficult people in difficult times. There is not to be this, look, if you want to believe that, and that's how you want to act, that's fine, and I'll do this, but you know, we're all individuals. No way. Not in God's church. There is too much at stake. Look, I reckon we don't really like this. And I think, I know that's how you feel because I think that's how I feel. You know, we had a situation here at Norwest about three months ago where one of our wonderful 1045 families were approached at their home by two Mormon men who were door knocking. And this couple are fantastic. Uh, at 1045, they invited them in, they had lunch with them and they engaged with them. And this couple of these two blokes just came back a number of times. And in the end, this couple from 1045 said, how about you come to our church and meet our pastors? 
Can I say that's a great strategy and Craig Foster would love to meet any Mormons that you bring along any time. And actually, Craig did spend a significant amount of time speaking to these two Mormon guys out on the deck after 10.45. But after a while, I went over to say good day. And as I was speaking to these two guys, I noticed something very strange within me. I found myself wanting to affirm as much as I could with them as they spoke. I found myself sort of almost wanting to paper over the differences between us to find common ground. And this, with two men who are in a non-Christian, non-biblical, Jesus-denying cult who are at our church trying to convince a wonderful Christian couple to renounce what they believe here to go to their church. And me as the leader of this place, the one who's meant to set the theological direction, tone and teaching, found myself in this weird situation. Oh no, it seems okay. It's, you know, what is going on there? The answer is I'm not sure. I'm still working it through. But I was taken by surprise at my own desire to minimize and affirm my desire to be agreeable. And I reckon if I can do that, then maybe there's a chance that we all can. Maybe it's because we don't want to be offensive. Perhaps it's because we're not sure what we believe ourselves. Maybe it's because we don't realize what's at stake. But brothers and sisters, Titus shows us that there is something more important than being agreeable, and that is being truthful. Always respectful, but prizing truth over pleasantry. Paul's warning to Titus and to us is that people like this will attempt to destroy God's church. And as they have influence in a church, they are to be silenced. Their mouths stopped. And they are to be rebuked strongly. Well, there's one final thing. Uh, we'll finish on this. The final thing we see is in verse 16, and Paul really saves his strongest language for the end. Uh, this is how he describes these people in verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Note the name of our series, Grace Does Good. Big theme in, uh, in Titus is that when you know the grace of God, you do good. Notice what he says here in verse 16. These people are incapable of doing good. Now remember, he's referring to certain leaders and teachers in the church in Crete. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that in God's church, it is possible that there might be people who look like elders, who teach like elders, but who will not know Jesus. What he's actually saying is that not all the church is the church. Think about that. Not all the church is the church. That is, there are people, there will be people in God's church who will be more Cretan than Christian more Sydney than like their saviour. Now there's two things to say on this point. Firstly, can I say we love that this church here at Norwest has people within it who do not know the Lord Jesus. Every week, every service, there's a number of people who are coming here to wrestle with who Jesus is and what he means. We love that. They are so welcome. If that's you here tonight, you are so welcome. That is a sign of a healthy church. But those people are not the elders here. Second thing to say, how do you know that's not the elders here? How do you know? How do you know that James, Craig and I aren't 
Cretan? How do you know that we are the godly elders that Paul writes of? How, how do you know that we don't teach half-truths? Well, what does Paul say in chapter 1 of Titus? He says it comes down to whether the three of us hold firmly to the trustworthy message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it has been taught. And the way, brothers and sisters, that you can know that James, Craig and me are godly in the way we teach is by knowing the gospel yourselves. You see, this is not a church where you have priests, where you sit there docile and we just say these magic words and then you go out into the street. Now, according to the New Testament, you're all priests just as much as we are. What's a priest? Someone who represents God to others. That is what every Christian is who has Christ living within them. Your job is to know God's word so well that you keep the elders here accountable to what we teach. And when you think there is half-truth or error or mistake creeping in, that you speak up to us. Well, friends, one final reflection. It will say in your outline two final reflections, but it's only one because the other one will be next week. Um, so as we come to close our first chapter in Titus 1, I want to show you how a passage such as this drives our ministry practice. My guess is that sometimes you think that on a Sunday we have a sermon and then we just run the church and we make decisions here and there. What I want to show you now is how in every decision we make in this place, we attempt to drive decision-making from first principles, first principles being God's Word. That is, I want to show you now how Titus 1 shapes an area of our life together here at Norwest. Okay? Now, you'll know here at Norwest, every year we have sign-ups for community groups. They're our Bible studies here at Norwest. And every year at Norwest, there are a few people who let us know that there are not enough groups or that there isn't a group at their service that suits them for whatever reason. Can I just say that's fine that you let us know? And it happens every year. A couple of things to say about that. Firstly, as personally frustrating as it might be to a few people, that is a sign of a growing church. When resources in a church are being so stretched because kids' ministry is booming, Chinese ministry is exploding, and community group attendance is growing more and more, how do we resource it all? You do not want to be in a church where you have more community group leaders than you need, for that is the first sign of decline. Secondly, and on point, because that point then wasn't on point, but this one is. We take community group leading here at Norwest very seriously. Our community group leaders here at Norwest pastor this church alongside the elders. We take community group leading here very seriously for all the reasons we've just seen in Titus 1. That being the case, community group leaders at Norwest do not self-select. They do not put their hand up and say, hey, I, I could do that. They are invited to consider and pray about serving in this way by James, Craig or me. Then they undertake 12 months of training and development with James, who helps them grow in their understanding of the scriptures, the life of the church and the care of God's people. Right now, James has 12 adults, people from church in his leaders in training group for leadership here at Norwest in 2019. 
Now, what that means, brothers and sisters, is that because we take leadership here so seriously, we will always choose no leaders over inappropriate leaders. And that might mean that we sometimes have slightly fewer community groups than we would like. It might mean that sometimes our community groups are larger than we would like. And it might mean that not everyone at every service has the full choice at their service of every different type and style of community group. I just want you to know that we're really okay with that. And it's because we take Paul's teaching so seriously here. And there's many of us in the room who have seen what happens in churches when ministers don't. Now, we don't always get it right. Your elders here are far from perfect. It's just that we're so deeply convicted that Jesus is so precious, that his word is so important, that his church is so valuable, that we want to be led here by those who have shown themselves to be followers of Jesus over time. Godly, wise, grace-filled in the way they live their lives. May the grace of Jesus Christ do good in your life. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you that in your word you tell us what the church is, but you also show us how it should be led. And Father, it is not what we would do left to our own devices. We would look for very different leaders than you do. Father, it's remarkable that you call us to follow you. It's remarkable that you give us your word. It's remarkable that you plant us as your people. And it's remarkable that the way you bring new people to yourself is through our efforts as you work through us. Father, may this place, Norwest Anglican, always be deeply pleasing to you, always be led by the most humble, godly, Christ-filled people, and may those who come here who don't know you look at this church and say, wow, there is something different about those people. And all glory to your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that the gospel can change the most depraved of people? the most unpromising of